If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Again? Um, again. I know it does seem Groundhog Day. <laughs> How are you, Giggly Head? I'm good. I'm good, good. I'm good. Good. And you know we're going to focus on France. It comes around all the time. You know, Just when you thought it had gone away, it comes right back. France, French politics, the French far right. Why is French exceptional as it is? Yeah. And why for a country, you know, if you look at almost all surveys of quality of life, France is in the top five in the world, okay? Mm. It has everything. It's got the food. It's got the weather. It's got the culture. It's, it's got, got the, the history. Wine. It's got the wine. It's, you know, it's got incredibly brilliant metrics on health, on education. It's got transport. It's unbelievably wealthy by any, any human standard ever. France is probably, if you were to draw the lottery in the great lottery of life one of those lottery tickets was being born in France and yet they're yeah. fucking mad <laughs> yeah. like but, why but the, the last election you did a whole thing I on I covered the French election five years ago which is fascinating TV, and it was fascinating and I went and because we're going to talk about Le Pen yeah because she's done well she's back in the frame people thought that she was dead and buried yeah and yeah. also people thought she was going to be outflanked by the extreme right, Zemmour. And in a way, it seems that Zemmour, by actually going even more extreme right than Le Pen, kind of made Le Pen respectable. Yeah. And it pushed her into the centre, even though she's really quite radical. Yeah. But but she's back now. She's back. I'll tell you, it was five years ago, this week, five years ago, the final Le Pen rally before the first election. So the French election is two things. First election is basically a big come all yeah. Everyone goes in. Yeah, yeah. Go on, you know, it's like, throw your hat in the <laughs> ring, you know, and everyone goes into the ring, right? And now it's narrowed down to the two main characters, Le Pen and Macron. But then it was very interesting for me. It was in the Hippodrome, right, in Marseille. Now, Marseille is a fantastic city. It's really, really different, you know. It's, it's, yeah. it's got everything. And it is a Mediterranean city. Now, when we think the Mediterranean, we think the south of France, Spain. When the Mediterranean thinks the Mediterranean, it's Algeria, Tunisia, Lebanon, yeah, Israel, yeah. Greece, the whole littoral all the way to Morocco, right? And 
First of all, Marseille is Mediterranean in its totality. So it's Arabic. Yeah. It's Islamic. It's non-French. And it feels vibrant. It feels the market is unbelievable. The smell, the smell of Africa. Well, right? it's, like, it's like most kind of European, well, it's like most port cities. It's a mixture of people. In every yeah. port, there's always, everybody kind of turns up there and, and yet, lives there. And yet, the nightlife is terrible. Now, this is interesting. Really? So, I've, so I've the, never actually been to Marseille. The port of Marseille is jammed during the day, mm. but at night, it's empty because it's jammed with Muslim people in the day and they don't drink. So they don't go to clubs, they don't go to bars. So all, all those things you associate with nightlife, they're not doing in right, the same, right. same way, right? That's the first thing. But the second thing is her speech at the Hippodrome was amazing because it was the French right wing at home, right? And she was using these expressions that were very, very, very inflammatory. But what was interesting was, it seemed to me that most people were pied noir there. These people called the black feet. And the black feet is an expression for French people who lived in the French colony of Algeria before they got kicked out in the Algerian War mm. in 1958. The most famous one of them was Albert Camus. Camus was a PNR, right? Right. And they are very patriotic. They are very much the French empire worldview. And they formed the basis of the Jean-Marie Le Pen yeah. National Front. Yeah. Okay. And of course, they're very racist. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, there's no getting away from the fact that to vote for Le Pen means you are voting for the legitimacy of racism. But didn't Marine Le Pen kick out her dad? She did. Which is really bizarre. She thought actually. he was too extreme. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. dad. It's like your dad. It's like when my kids, when I'd say something, they say, you can't say that, dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the world has moved on, right? And I'm like, really? Can I not say that? No, you can't say that, dad, right? Okay. Do not say that when you go out, okay? So our houses reverberate. So with that, dad, you can't say that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a really extreme version. It's like, dad, you really can't say that. Anyway, so, but right now, what you have is... Europe's second most important country, second largest economy, with maybe more muscular political power than Germany. Mm. And it is heading down this bipartisan culture war. It reminds me more of America. You know the way America has gone down the culture war? So you've got the right wing and the left wing. So even if Macron prevails, right, there still is this, and it's like Brexit, it's a culture war. What is France? Who is France? Who are we? All that stuff. Can I ask you, just before we we get on to Le Pen, in the last election, Le Pen was supposed to do well, and she didn't. Macron kind of... She did well, but then Macron hammered her in the final. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, so, in the last five years, what's Macron's record like? Well, like his record in France on employment, on wealth, creation, yeah. is all quite good. But is, that, but is that enough to carry him through? I'm not sure. I'm really not sure because what you've had is the working assumption in France has always been the first election for president is, as I say, a camoglia, right? And mm. and it's, it's kind of chaos. But if you look at the breakdown in France, so you've got Mélenchon, who's extreme left, on about 15% of right. the vote, right? You have Zemmour which is extreme, extreme right, 
Yeah. About 10% of the vote. Le Pen picking up 20 plus percent of the vote. That means that four French people out of 10 have voted for really extreme parties. I mean, mm. that's an amazing thing to happen in a society that's quite stable. Yeah. You then have the Gilets Jaunes. You remember that entire yeah, yeah. movement? That was over a small increase in excise duty to pay for a carbon tax, right? So to pay for the future. And you get this massive, massive insurrection against not just Macron, but against the elites. So the language of Brexit, it's the elites, it's London, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same in France. So it's the elites, it's Paris, it's the overeducated, yeah. Well, he's the ex-banker, isn't he? He's the ex-banker and he never had a political party. And he, he looks and feels like somebody who worked for Goldman Sachs. Yeah, right? yeah he does, he does. And yeah. then in his first part of his presidency, the French were worried that he, they used to call it the Jupiterian, uh, like the god Jupiter. He was so far above everybody. And then he made the mistake of not actually having any election electioneering. He didn't start electioneering until the Sunday before. Really? Yes. What, because he why? said, oh, don't worry, I'm going to deal with Putin and I'm going to deal with foreign policy and I'm going to, you, you, you squabble over the, you know, the entrails of the economy. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. as we said last week, the economy smells like a welder, yeah. not like a tech bro, yeah. okay? <laughs> smells like a welder. So you've got to get into the mind of the welder and what the welder in France is pissed off about is white working class, they're really worried about culture wars, about Islam, really worried about unemployment. They're, for example, standard of living is, although high in the aggregate, they don't feel it. Mm. So the average French person feels it, but there is no average person. Yeah. And if you're this guy in the North or in, in the South, or if you're like a farmer or whatever, you're feeling, hold on a second, what has the center done for me? And the, the reality objectively is lots. But if you're in France, it doesn't feel that way. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what is extraordinary is France has got amazing companies. It has got amazing research and development. It is by far and away, after Germany, the most sophisticated technological player in Europe. It has tourism. It has agriculture. It has everything. Yeah. But what it does have, I mean, you know, the great quote from Charles de Gaulle. Go on. He said, how can you run a country that has 127 different versions of camembert. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fair point, I'm basically really. saying, like, well, this is a crazy place, <laughs> yeah. and I've got to run it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the most important thing, and let's go to it, deep in France is a culture war between what it is to be a French person. And this is a battle that all democracies and all open societies are going through because immigration is part of life now. Sure, of course. So let's go to Yasha Monk, who's a really fascinating German, stroke Polish, now living in American, writer and thinker, because he's just written a book about how we deal with diverse societies. Is there a way for the centre to get back in the game now? I'm going to obviously reveal myself as a centrist dad. I actually like the centre. I think the centre has given us almost everything. Yeah. So let's talk to Yasha. Let's go. He's in, he's in Vienna. Let's go and talk to him about what we can do to make diverse ethnic, religious, and social societies work coherently so that we don't all fall into the French culture war. Let's go to Vienna. And Yasha is on the line from 
Vienna, Yasha, how are you? I'm really good, really looking forward to this. Great. Now tell me, tell me, I was just telling you before we started that Ireland now has the highest percentage of foreign-born people in the European Union, which is something that most Irish people don't know. So we've been taken by surprise by immigration and diversity, but it's kind of working. But I want you to tell me what sort of issues are down the line, because sometimes when a country just absorbs something quickly, it's kind of, it's almost like a shock and awe. You're like, whoa, okay. But explain to me why you wrote the book, the premise, and then why you wrote it, and then the solutions that we can find. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that's actually not an atypical story. A lot of democracies were founded when they were relatively homogeneous. Countries like Germany, where I grew up, used to be much more heterogeneous, but it was really after the terrible genocides and ethnic cleansings and expulsions of the first half of the 20th century, when they were more homogeneous, that the democracies took root. There's obviously exceptions like the United States, which have always had a huge amount of ethnic and religious variety, but that also used to treat some groups very much worse than others, that in fact did not accept African Americans as true citizens at all, and even enslaved them for a large part of American history. And so what we actually really don't have is a model for a diverse democracy that treats all citizens uh, truly equally, but has a lot of historical precedent. So the reason why I decided to write this book is to say, hey, we're in this sort of experiment. We've ended up in this situation, like Ireland, without thinking about it very much, without being very conscious of it, um, not because any politicians like some people on the far right like to claim sort of wanted to replace the population or had some kind of grand design, but because of a set of economic and other decisions, not really thinking through the consequences, and suddenly we're in this situation of having a lot of ethnic and religious diversity. Now, there's one thing to worry about and, and one thing to be optimistic about. Uh, the thing to worry about, and it's a serious thing to worry about, is that most of our societies in the history of the world have gone pretty badly wrong. But we've ended up suffering from, from real injustices, from forms of domination, forms of fragmentation, forms of what I call structured anarchy, real ways in which those societies fell apart. Is this, is this the pressure cooker that you see? Like if, if you just take that analogy that, you know, you put everything into the mix, you turn up the heat and something explodes. Is that what you're what we're thinking about in historical senses? So let me get this through, through, through human psychology. We have a really deep instinct to, to form groups. Humans have, yeah. And to favor the people who, who are part of those groups and to um, discriminate against those who are outside those groups. Now, you know, we've had lots of relatively homogeneous societies that have ended up having uh, civil wars. Uh, we've had a number of pretty diverse societies that have managed to keep the peace, at least for a long time. But when you think of some of the greatest injustices in history, all the way back to ancient times, the expulsion of the Assyrians, down to the Holocaust, the genocide in Rwanda, the civil war in Yugoslavia, so many of those conflicts were in fact driven by ethnic and religious yeah. differences, by clashes between different population groups. So I do think that it's a real challenge to think through how do we manage this instinct that humans have to favor the in-group against the out-group? How do we make sure that our societies don't end up like so many diverse societies before in the past? So that's the bad news. Now, the good news is that there's a lot of pessimism about the current state of our societies in many uh, diverse democracies. And I, and I actually have a more positive view of where we're at, especially compared to most diverse societies in the history of the world. And so I've, I try to develop an optimistic vision in this book for, for how we can make this experiment work. Now, we are in Ireland as Europeans we obviously are very aware of 
the Salvinis, the Le Pens on the continent. Our closest neighbour, Brexit in Britain, is a culture war, a deep culture war. It's a political one, it's an ideological one, it's a racial one, it's a geographic one, it's a visionary one. Can we just focus on maybe a little bit of the Brexit notion of that culture war? And here is a society that is at war with itself uh, deeply and thankfully through the democratic process. But what sort of fractures, what sort of structures, what sort of pressures were you seeing in the UK, for example, that led to this? And then how can that be avoided? So I think that there's different things that drive this. One of them is a feeling of economic stagnation that a lot of people have, right? I think that a lot of why societies used to work relatively well 20 or 30 or 40 years ago at the political level, at least, compared to today, is that people felt, you know what, I'm doing a lot better than the past. My kids are going to do better than me. And do I trust those people in the houses of parliament? Not really. I think we're all a selfish bunch of liars and whatever. But something seems to be working. So, you know, let's let them do their thing. I think now there's the sense that, you know, I'm not doing much better than my parents. My kids are going to do worse than me. And so I want something to break. I want something to change. And that can take many different forms. It can take the form of Donald Trump. It can take the form of Brexit. It can take the form of uh, a kind of hatred of Muslims. But, but you want something, somebody to blame, right? So that's one kind of thing. Second thing is the rise of the internet and of social media and the way in which that makes it easier for extremists to have a voice, for lies to spread. So that's an important one. I think a third one, to be a little bit more self-critical, is that, you know, a lot of educated people who are part of a kind of cultural or political elite have started to lead lives that are pretty separate from the bulk of the population. And I have to say, when I listen to my friends or when I open the newspaper uh, or listen to certain radio shows, there's a lot of disdain for ordinary people. There's a lot of looking down on, on, yeah, on average. Yeah, the, the elite looking down on the average Joe. Yeah. Yeah, they're bad people. Um, they're these barbarians standing at the door and we're defending civilization against these, you know, unwashed herds. And uh, look, when people talk about you like that, you're going to get angry and you're going to want to tell them to fuck off. And so I think that's, that's, that's part of what's happening. And I think that's, that we have to be honest and, and, and self-critical about that as, as people who have you know, a platform and recording this podcast and so on. I do also think that it has to do with the topic of this book. I do also think that with a lot of immigration and the growth of minority groups, I think there still is a common culture, but I think it's more complicated. There's more rapid change, which can be destabilizing. I think there's a backlash against that. I think there's part of a population that is really afraid of what those changes will bring, that thinks that immigrants are somehow inferior in cultural terms, perhaps even in biological terms, that therefore they strain social systems, that they destroy the culture, but they don't integrate. So there's a lot of fears around that. But interestingly, I find that there's also a very pessimistic narrative, not just on, on the far right, but also in some ways among my friends or on the left or among academics who say our society is so profoundly racist and discriminatory that immigrants never have a chance to integrate, never have a chance to advance socioeconomically, and that things are going to continue to be really, really bad. And now there are real problems, there are injustices, there's discrimination. There's also some immigrants who are not been interested in, in integrating. All of that is true. But I worry that this pessimistic vision of the future actually puts more pressure on our society, adds fuel to a culture war, because everybody feels like things are about to go off the rails. And so if we want to get people on board, I think we have to have a more positive vision of how we might actually be able to create a society 
in which most people, whether they are a member of sort of the historic majority, as it were, or whether they are, they are immigrants, they're members of minority groups, would be happy and keen to live in. And I don't see many people trying to build that vision on any part of the political spectrum right now. You know, and you're right that pessimism has a self-propelling momentum. And it's very easy to inculcate people into pessimistic ideas. And it's very, very difficult to actually say, hold on a second, there is an alternative vision of a sort of a civic, you call it in the book, civic patriotism. This idea that patriotism can itself be a propulsion for something fantastic and something where people can live together, left and right can live together, young and old can live together, different ethnicities. So, you know, it's not just about immigration. It's about the whole melting pot that is a normal functioning society, a normal functioning democracy. So let's go, let's talk, Yasha, about the optimistic vision. Well, so firstly, I think the question is, what is the state of these diverse societies? Yeah. So there's a narrative on the, on the far right, which is, look, all these immigrants are coming in, they're not learning the language, they're uneducated, they're not making any socioeconomic progress, and so we're always going to be paying for the welfare benefits, they're not really contributing, they're always going to be a kind of underclass. And often they will blame uh, immigrants for that. They will say that's because they're just not as good as us, right? Yeah, this is the, the, Le Pen, um, the Le Pen narrative. Now, what's interesting is that obviously the kinds of people that I tend to hang around with are horrified by this and say, you know, this is nasty and how can you blame immigrants for, for their difficulties and so on. But in a way, they have a similar narrative, which is that they say, you know, there's, there's so much discrimination. Uh, we're so unready to welcome immigrants. Our society is so backward that they don't have to stand a chance. And look at how unjust everything is. Look at how unfair everything is. Look at how much everybody is suffering. Now, they assign the blame in a very different place, but they actually have a similar narrative. But in a way, immigration integration isn't working. It's it just not working, yeah. Than them, yeah. But, but, but it's a similar kind of pessimism. And look, uh, I don't like that pessimism, but I didn't you know, sit down and say, I'm going to write an optimistic book, whatever, whatever comes. And I sat down and looked at, at, at the studies and the facts and tried try to figure out what actually is going on. And thankfully, the reality is just much better than that. So let's talk about language acquisition. There's a really interesting sociological model, which basically turns out to be true in virtually every context, which is that the first generation comes in and they don't speak the language very well. And often they don't learn the language that well. Often people have been in the country 30, 40, 50 years. By the end of that time, might still speak the language pretty imperfectly. Well, their kids are going to speak the language of origin pretty well because they speak it with their parents. But they're going to already prefer the language of a country where they sure. go to school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even with, with friends who come from the same background, they will tend to speak English if they're in Ireland or German if they're in Germany yeah. and so on. And their kids usually speak a couple of words of the language of their grandparents, but basically no longer speak it at all. Yeah. Um, and so their native tongue really is the local language and that's it. So that's a very different image from, from what you might get listening to people. In terms of socioeconomic progress, you're seeing the same kind of piece of good news. Again, I think understanding the difficulty of diverse democracies can paradoxically make us more optimistic. But here's one thing that people often miss out. When you have people coming into a country who come from much poorer countries and have lower skill sets that not have a chance to go to school or university and so on, unsurprisingly, they're going to earn less than the average of a local population for the rest of their life. Unsurprisingly, they, they don't speak the language that well, they don't have that many skills, they didn't have... They don't have the networks, all, this, all those things that matter. Yeah, but the kids are actually going to have, on average, higher social mobility than the kids of similarly qualified local kids. Yeah. And that continues in the third generation. And so according to the best studies, 
when you don't just look at the average of immigrants, but you look at for once for the one generation down, two generation down, they are rapidly climbing the educational ladder. And as a result, they are rapidly making more and more money. And the gap is closing quickly. Now, in the United States, there's a similar story. You know, there's a lot of my progressive friends in America who say, well, look, the Italians and the Irish were able to uh, integrate when they came the best because they were white. And yeah, at first they weren't considered white, but then, you know... We were whitish, and then we became more white. Exactly. And so they, they were able to climb up the ladder. But that's not true today for people coming in from Central America or from Africa and so on, because we're such a racist society. Again, undoubtedly there's discrimination. Undoubtedly there's many things that are harder if you're not white in the United States. But the best studies suggest that this is simply not true, that immigrants from Central America, for example, rise via socioeconomic ranks about as quickly as Italians and Irish Americans did 100 years ago. That took a while too. That's fast. That um, is fascinating because uh, I, would have, I would have bought into the previous story that, you know, we were kind of Europeans, we kind of looked like them. Yeah, there was a bit of, there was a lot of anti-Catholic racism, but that was kind of dressed up as anti-foreign, you know, because Catholicism was regarded as foreign. But ultimately, you know, within a generation, we looked and sounded like the wasps, and it was fine. But you're saying, in actual, even among Central Americans, they're doing much better than our, our feeling is. Because are we talking, Yasha, really about feelings here? Because we've got facts, stats, and the hard stuff. And then you've got the, what I would call the, the pub talk, the feeling in the mm. pub about what's going on. And that's very hard to change. The feelings is interesting as well, right? Because when you listen to the political, so basically my model of a world right now is that the political level is all screwed for all kinds of reasons. Okay, fair enough. But what's actually happening in the heart of society is much better. And so the worry is that the politics is going to screw everything else up. But if we can resist the politics, actually what's going on in society is a lot better. So let's talk about America on that front, right? Again, the feeling among many of my friends is things are just absolutely terrible, and they think that that's what many people of color, as, as they would say, but, but many non-white people in the United States also think. And that's true of the most prominent writers and intellectuals and so on from that group. But when you actually look at public opinion, that just isn't at all the case. So I'll give you two examples. African-Americans and Latinos are more optimistic about the future and more optimistic about the future of America than white Americans are. No, you wouldn't think that. No, no, no. I'll give you another example that I find even more striking. When you ask African-Americans how in general they feel about white people, it's a weird kind of question, but it's a standard social science question that's been asked for a long time. Most of them have a pretty good opinion. When you ask left-leaning white people how they feel about white people, which is to say their siblings and their parents, among others, they have a much more negative view. It's a self-loathing liberal. We have loads of them here. So what you're saying is that there's a story being told. Like The story of the extreme right is pretty straightforward. We know what it is. But there's the story of the center left to the left, which is almost a self-loathing uh, created story, which is trying to bash the data into a confession, as we say in economics, okay? But what you're saying is when you actually go to confession, the story is more of a centrist idea that people are getting on, they're trying to get on together, they're trying to go up the social ladder, and in many cases they're getting there. Yeah, and again, I, I don't want to soft paddle the fact that there's deep injustices, that there's a terrible number of police shootings in the United States, that there is a persistent wage gap, in particular a persistent wealth gap in, in the United States because the horrible legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and centuries of discrimination obviously continues to have uh, serious after effects until today. So my point is not to be glib. And I get the instinct to want to emphasize the negative, right? I think it comes from this idea that if only we keep pointing to the injustices, then perhaps finally we'll be able to go and fight against them and get rid of them. And I get that. 
But, but I worry about it for two reasons. The first is that we need to know whether or not things are improving to have a sense of what to do next, right? If nothing's been working for the last 40 or 50 years, then we just need to throw out everything we're doing and start completely from scratch. But when in fact things have been getting significantly better, even though they're far from perfect today, that should make us much more optimistic about being able to keep pushing in the same direction with renewed force, redoubling our efforts, and get towards a better state of society that way. So that's one point. And then the other point is a question about, you know, how do we stop people from Le Pen or people from winning? How do we stop somebody like Trump from coming back in 2024? And I think there's a lot of, you know, normal people who are not bigots, who are not racists, who have concerns about immigration, who have concerns about various forms of demographic and cultural change, and who want somebody to tell them that things are going to be all right that actually the country that we're building, they're going to want to live in. And if all that the, that the left is able to say to them is, you know what, our country is so deeply unjust as nothing has gotten better over the last decades and nothing is going to get better in the next decades. And all we can have is, you know, a clash between these different groups in which hopefully the people who've been historically oppressed are going to win and finally get their fair share by sort of inverting what used to be the case. That's not going to be an attractive vision that can actually persuade people to trust in the future of their own societies. And when that happens, a few might become sort of, you know, committed activists for justice. A lot are going to go and vote for really nasty figures on the far right. So just one before we, we go, Yasha, I think so this is, it seems to me like it's an impassioned plea for what could be called the center, the radical center, the, you know, the, the area where most people actually live. I know at the moment, the worst thing you can possibly be is a centrist dad, quite happy to be a centrist dad, actually, right? But is, what you're saying is that the center has a place, and a special place, and that's the ballast of society. And there is a way we can progress through the center, taking in concerns on either side, but not lurching to either side. Well, you know, yes and no, in the sense that it depends on exactly the context of society and so on. The center means something very different in Ireland, from the States, from yeah. Germany. But I really want to address everybody who recognizes that we are in this great experiment I'm talking about, that what we're doing is actually quite historically unique, but there's no great precedent for how to make these diverse democracies that actually treat the citizens equally work. And I want to persuade everybody, whether they're in the center or on the left or on the right, that there's no good alternative to making this experiment work, that if it fails, as it well might, the consequences are going to be absolutely brutal, are going to involve violence on, on, on a large scale, as it usually has in the history of the world. That some countries like Japan or Bulgaria, but it's still pretty homogeneous, they might want to have an abstract conversation about whether or not it's good to have more diversity yeah, or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? but it's abstract. And failed, right? In Ireland, as you're saying, you have about a fifth of the population that has been born outside of Ireland's boundaries. So unless you want to expel all of them by force, you've got to figure out how to make this work, right? And so I think even if you're on the right, you know, we all need to figure out how to make those societies work. And I think we're only going to be able to do that if we have an optimistic vision for what that society would, would actually look like. One in which... In terms of a manifesto, can we always conclude with a manifesto, okay? In terms of a manifesto, can we have three moves, points, ideas that would cement that vision together? Yeah. I really set out the vision of what that kind of society looks like. I also have some policy suggestions. 
But primarily, my optimism comes from the developments that are actually happening in society. And I think we should recognize them and we should encourage them. And just to give one example, one of those is to embrace a healthy form of patriotism. I think we're seeing in Ukraine today that patriotism can be a very positive force, can be something that inspires solidarity, that helps us to stand with each other in the face of, of real danger. There's a form of nationalism which is ethnically based, which says, unless your great, great, great grandparents were already in Ireland, you're not really Irish. I think that's obviously something that doesn't work for a highly diverse society. There's a second form of patriotism, which is what intellectuals usually defend, which is a sort of civic patriotism, which says, you know, the reason why you love Ireland is that you love the constitution and you love the political system and our political values. That's all great. I'm a politically minded person. I care deeply about liberal democracy. We should keep that as one element of our patriotism. I just don't think that's how most people come to a patriotism. Most people don't yeah. say, I love my country. They don't think about politics. They don't think about the constitution. And so I think we need a third form of patriotism, which again, I think is already there in, in, in reality, but we should actually recognize it, which is a, a cultural patriotism. And that cultural patriotism can celebrate uh, the past of a country. It can celebrate some of its traditional costumes and traditional dishes, but it is also about the cities and the landscapes and the people and the customs and the YouTube stars as they are today. It's actually a love of the country in which of the people present, live. almost the present with all the things you find annoying about it, all the things that annoy you about it, but also the, the things that you find lovable and comforting about it. And that already is very diverse and is looking towards the future rather than uh, just being rooted in the past. And I think this is the way in which we already are building societies together and we should be more willing to celebrate that. Yash Monk, I think that is a lovely way to, to end. Listen, Yash, is great. The book, by the way, guys, it's called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. And the next time, we hope we'll see you here, face to face. I look forward to it. Brilliant. Yash, take care, man. Thank you, David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's really interesting listening to Yasha talk about 
talk there about this great experiment and cultural diversity and stuff. But it strikes me that in in um in a world where there's what seven and a half billion people, yeah, and growing, yeah, that the diversity and the mixing of cultures and ethnicities and all the rest, you know, is a given and it's bound to happen and it's going to continue. So we do need to find a way of dealing with this yeah. and, and this new patriotism, whatever that is. Or living together, like the, the worst thing in the French elections, the worst thing you could be called by the right wing was a globalist, right? Yeah. Meaning you're part of that globe thing, right? You like foreign people, you like foreign travel, you like foreign food, you know, all that sort of thing, right? You like globalization, you're a globalist, right? Yeah. But I think you're right. I mean, the history of humanity, to move is to be human. Yes. That's what we do. The history of Ireland is moving. We moved here, other people moved here, we moved off, we moved back, all that sort of stuff. Well, it's a big, beautiful world out there and I want to go and see. I want to go see it all, (laughs) I want to live there, you know. But I mean, it is, you know, I think that it's going to be very difficult to be able to navigate these sort of urges. So there is an urge that I don't agree with, but I can understand it, that we are one nation and this nation is people who lived in Ireland for 100 years or 200 mm. years, right? And that has kind of sustained the myth of the country for a while. And then that's been exploded because the country is multi-ethnic now. We are the, the highest proportion of foreign-born people in Europe. Yeah. Right? And we're getting on with it. But I worry that in the next 10 years, a I mean, you look at, for example, Northern Ireland. It's entirely driven by ethnic things. You're either that mm. or that. You're this religion, that religion. And it's appalling. And it's like, it's it's insufferable, right? So I'm not too sure. Sh- I, mean, I wonder how we're going to deal with it. Brexit kind of terrifies me because England used to be quite tolerant. Yeah. France kind of terrifies me. Germany seems to have dealt with it. But what Yasha was saying was this idea of a civic patriotism. You know? Yeah, yeah. That you, so you are, but you celebrate the present, not the past. What's going on right now? Yeah. And yeah. that that's amazing to find, but it's very hard to put your finger on. Like it's much easier to go to the foundational myths of the country and the legends and the history. Yes. And all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But that is by definition exclusory because it excludes everybody. Yeah, but it's it's okay to kind of celebrate that kind of stuff. But as you say, times change, people move in, people move out. There's a big mix of of yeah. what's going on, and it creates a whole new kind of dynamic. And it's that dynamic that we need to embrace well, and yeah, make the most yeah, of. Yeah, and make the most of. And also, I think, and it sounds an unusual thing. Like I've always felt that the Irish diaspora to talk about ethnicity is a huge, huge positive for this country. Mm. And for them, they feel a bit lost. Right? They come over here on Paddy's Day, or whatever. And I've always thought that it would be quite interesting to use the island of Ireland as a recharging battery for the Irishness of the tribe outside, right? And this is not to exclude everybody, but it's also to genuflect to the history and say, okay, these are part of a tribe, which is now still clearly the majority tribe here, and this is what we are. And I've always thought we'd, maybe it would be a good idea is to bring those people back. Like, remember when we were in the Gale Talks, right? Yes. To have a big Gale Talk for those Argentinian Irish, British Irish, you know, whatever, and bring them back and allow them to hang out here as teenagers during the summer. Right. So you kind of recharge. So it's the idea what you're trying to do is you're trying to create a notion of Irishness over and above 
just living in the yes. country. Yeah. So Irishness then becomes almost like an attribute, becomes like a characteristic. And I think that as the world becomes more globalized, and I think it will become more globalized, that these sort of identities will be hugely significant and hugely important. And I think you can have immigrants and you can have immigration, but as long as Irishness is an encompassing ideology, an encompassing notion, and it's a feeling, it's a warm feeling. Yeah. Because when Irishness... But it also evolves. I of mean, course it, it evolves, yeah. yeah and, and, but that, that has to be acknowledged that cultures evolve. Absolutely. And I think that here in Ireland, right, we have the opportunity. Let's look at France and say, okay, what happened to make Le Pen so strong? Was it that Muslim and black French people didn't feel integrated? Or was it that the concerns of white people in France, which are completely legitimate, weren't listened to? Same in Brexit. And we take, say, okay, let's not make those mistakes. And one of those things is to, I would say, to superannuate Irishness into a much bigger idea than just your grandfather came here, your great-grandfather came here. And that would be civic patriotism on a global scale. And you're creating a new brand. And I think that's what we've got to do. While I have you there, listen, I just want to say thank you so much to all our Patreons who really supported myself and John throughout the last nearly three years. Man. Three years, wow. Oh, it's a long time. I thought it only started last week. It's such good crack though, isn't it? Is. It is, it is, it is. It's like, it's like having the dream gig. You know? <laughs> thank you very, very much. And if you do want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. You get ad-free you get courses, you get chats, you can ask me questions, all sorts of stuff, and you really become part of the gang. So that's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And again, thank you very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.